Hello, and welcome to episode four of Arts and Crass, the highbrow, lowbrow film podcast. I am Cullen. And I am Todd. And what we do around these parts is um, I, the uh, horror, exploitation, trash cinema aficionado, assigns Todd, the artsy-fartsy film student guy, um... (laughs) A, uh, a trashy film to watch, and he assigns me a classy film to watch, and then we talk about them, right? That's about right. Yeah. I mean, like, all, all I'm thinking about is, Elmer! Elmer! <laughs> you fucking named him Elmer? <laughs> we didn't name him Elmer. <laughs> it's Elmer. <laughs> so, as those of you in the know will... Uh, We'll have intuited from that. This week, I uh, assigned Todd uh, Frank Hennenlotter's 1988 film, Brain Damage. And I gave Colin um, 2002 by the Dardine brothers, The Son, Les Filles. Le Fils. Le Fils. Excuse me. Um, for a man that loves French cinema, I cannot speak a lick of French. Uh Maybe you should take a class. Maybe I should. Mm-hmm. But seeing as I've taken three Spanish classes and still can't speak Spanish, yeah. you know. Well, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. There you go. Um, okay, so I have a uh, coin, a quarter this time. We're moving on up. I think the first time it was a nickel, then maybe a dime. <laughs> Let's keep on going. Next week we're going to flip a uh, dollar bill for the first time, and we'll see how that goes. Uh, now I'm bringing a sack of Jawea. Introduce a little anarchy. Upset the established order, and everything becomes chaos. Usually Todd calls it in the air, so that's what I'm going to do. I'm flipping now. Heads. Tails it is. <laughs> and the, the, the story of this is that I've called Tails three weeks in a row, <laughs> and I think I've only won once. Yeah, yeah. And so, of course, I turn to switch it up, and the odds get me. All right, well... Uh, with that understanding in mind, um, I guess we're starting off with 1988, Brain Damage. Brain Damage. Um, yeah, so I'm going to throw you guys a synopsis. Um, so basically, um, one morning, um, a young man, Brian, um, young adult, um, working age, um, wakes up and finds a small, disgusting, leech-like, um creature um, has attached itself to the base of his brain or the base of his brain stem and um, and it jumps right into this by the way like like you open with this scene um, the creature gives him um, like a euphoric state of happiness through this um, excretion of a blue liquid that he injects into the stem of his brain um, the resulting effect is something of a crossover between the euphoria of an LSD trip and heroin. Um, It seems to be playing on all of those tendencies. Um, And and in return, this leech-like creature demands of Brian that he helps him seek out other humans so that he can eat their brains. So it's a symbiotic relationship to where the leech-like creature uses Brian to be his male um, kind of guide through the world to find brains to eat, um, in which he attaches himself to the forehead of people, sucks out their brains, and kills them. Um, and in return, Brian gets the um, the um, euphoria of the um, substance that's excreted into um, secreted into his uh, into his 
brainstem, and um, and it's very very addictive as well, um, and very quickly addictive. Um, now this creature is named Elmer, A Y L M E R. Um, so um, Brian, um, after he the addiction kind of um, begins to um, to really get deep. Um, Brian kind of adopts a, a heavily secluded life um, and, and indulges in these fluids where he just can't get enough. Um, and it begins to create rift between him and his two major relationships, um, his brother and his girlfriend. And, um, and then kind of plays out from there as you um, see his struggle with um, trying to separate from this symbiotic relationship with this very unhealthy um, creature or this very unhealthy relationship with this creature and try to salvage and, and save as best he can, um, even feeling somewhat um, sociopathic at this point, to try to salvage his, um, or his relationships or if not salvage them, at least save the individuals in his life from his own demise and his own fall. Um, and that was pretty much it, pretty heavily allegorical. And um, yeah, we'll stop there. I know you want my juice. <laughs> Can we go ahead and just talk about nothing but Elmer and the guy who did the voice acting for Elmer? Elmer has the sexiest, most alluring slash comedically... I don't even know quite how to describe like the tone and, and the inflections in his, in his dialogue, um, but it's one of the highlights of the film. Like I couldn't wait for Elmer to talk constantly like every time he opened his mouth I was elated yeah. the first time he opened his mouth I'm pretty sure I giggled out loud for about two minutes um, you even got a song or two from him uh, memories there is an Elmer song yeah. he actually sings an Elmer song and oh, I wish I could remember the melody I know I wrote down the line <laughs> okay well I mean we can you know we can get into that in a minute because um, the voice actor is a, an interesting character but uh, so uh, my opening sort of setting the table for our discussion of this film. Um, this is a very, actually a very personal film for me. It's a personal favorite. Um, it really, really blew me away when I saw it. It's pretty much unlike any other film that I know of. And uh, basically, uh, we can't be friends anymore if you did not like it. <laughs> So Todd, what what do you what did you think of this film? All right, um, we're gonna to try to go in slow because I feel like I give myself away early, uh, real often. Um, and regardless of my early uh, kind of self righteous poking that I always do on the films that Colin gives me, please don't um, jump to any conclusions here, guys. Um, this film was more than interesting to explore. Okay, so it starts off, and I and I immediately adjust to it being somewhat campy. Um, the opening scene I had a lot of production issues with. Um, I thought it was really flat. Um, and as it progressed, and so I, I started to throw it into my blood feast category very early on, um, on a production value level, um, that is really hard for me to get over some of these things. As it progressed, I don't know if I forgot about these things or, or the little flops that, that, that were bothering me early on or whether the production value truly um, kind of um, evolved as the film went on. But, but I actually do, like as the film continued, narratively, um, dramatically, dialogue, conceptually, and stylistically, and production modes, I felt like it evolved the entire film, which is, was really confusing and interesting to me. Um, but by the end, um, um, 
it seemed to have reached a level higher than than I ever would have assumed it would um, in the beginning. Um, and this goes the cinematography as well. In the beginning, I was actually um, very frustrated by some of the framing and some of the composition. And by the end, I think I was applauding the cinematographer, um, basically saying, "Wow, um, visual points of depth that were unbelievably intelligent, um, really smart framings." I think the awkward framings that were bothering me at the first were actually intentional. Um, that I at first thought there was excessive headroom. Um, strange medium close-ups and and then by the end I was like those were very unsettling framings I think he did that intentionally and I and I earned that faith in his intent um, by watching the rest of the film and realizing that the entire film had very specific intent and so then I went on to assume that um, those weren't mistakes and that they were actually probably pretty purposeful Um, and they did leave me unsettled and so obviously smart framing in that way Um, I could go on and on, actually. Um, why don't you jump in there, and then we'll um, well, yeah, kind of continue. Um, okay, yeah. I think as far as um, as far as modes of production, everything you said is deliberate, absolutely, in the film. The whole arc of Brian's character um, is that his life, he feels his life is boring. His life is flat, and the sort of the visual style of the beginning of the movie um, echoes that. Um, after that first, I, I mean, I cannot say enough about that fucking, that first hallucination scene. The room is pulsing with, with blue light and we cut to the light fixture on the ceiling. Cause Brian is on his back on the bed. We cut to the light fixture on the ceiling and it's a light fixture. And then we cut back to the room slowly starting to fill up with blue liquid. Then we cut back to the light fixture and it's transformed into a giant eyeball that's pulsing itself. And then we cut back to the liquid and we cut you back and forth between those two things, high and low a couple times. It's almost like the profane and the sacred and they're getting closer and closer because eventually he's just floating yes. in this in this pool, this very serene pool of blue liquid. And the music is really, really trippy and it's just fucking brilliant. Um, after that, his world gets progressively stranger. And it's about mind expansion. You know, the blue juice is a hallucinogen and his mind is is being expanded and the world is is becoming more colorful and a little more chaotic and crazy. But then eventually it it flips, you know, it tips over and, and turns into a nightmare. Um, so yeah, I think, I think everything motor production wise, um, that you pointed out absolutely is deliberate and does have a very, uh, a very intentional progression. That makes a lot of sense. And, and funny that I, I didn't yeah, put the connection between, um, it, it paralleling the narrative progression. Um, but yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. Because in that opening scene, I, I almost wanted to call him out. And, and a couple of times throughout the film, too, there were there are little spots that I'll, that I'll bring up that I almost wanted to call him out on on it being film student-esque um, is a term I like to use. Uh, meaning those little mistakes that just you probably wouldn't get to slide through um, by the time you reach other levels uh-huh. um, of filmmaking. Um, however, once again, it became much more seamless as the film went on. I started to think that maybe I had misinterpreted it and that some of it was intentional, as well as um, with what you just said about it paralleling the progression of the narrative and Brian's um, personal conflict, was that um, the, the opening scene being so flat and and because it was a look, kind of a lo-fi production anyway, mm-hmm. that I think that's probably why it came across student film-esque to me, that he really intended it to be flat and kind of empty and hollow. Yeah. Um, but that because it was low production value, 
on some of the visuals. Um, and well, I say that, but then there are other ones that were so spectacular and that he used his obstruction so well. Um, but in that opening scene, it was still tough for me not to say film student esque. Um, yeah. but as it progressed, I said that less and less throughout the entire film. And by the end, I don't think I was saying that at all. Yeah. Um, there were still things that bothered me, but, but I don't, yeah, I, I felt like it was a, a pretty craftsman esque filmmaking. Yeah. Somewhat questionable special effects aside but that's down to budget you know i'd put that up i'd put like some of the of the close-ups of elmer's needle going into the back of this of the skull you know i'd put that up against any of the uh you know the famous body horror sequences from the 80s uh from from carpenter's the thing to cronenberg's the fly absolutely so frank hennenlotter um is a really a legend uh in underground exploitation um american filmmaking he has made six films between 1982 and 2008 so not all that prolific but really not that bad either did he have a he had like a 16 year hiatus yeah yeah yeah, from 92 to 2008 i think right and so five of those films were made pretty much on a two year every two year yeah, so. yeah. So uh, the only reason I say that is because he does have the reputation as being someone who takes his time, a lot of time in between films. But you know, he really, he really isn't that bad in the grand scheme of things. He's no Terrence Malick. <laughs> um, so he, uh, his first film was uh, in 1982. It was called Basket Case. Um, probably his most legendary, most well regarded. When you talk about Hen and Ladder. Like I think people's minds immediately jumped to Basket Case. Um, part of the reason being he made two sequels to it. So three of his six films are all in the Basket Case universe, as this one also takes place in the in the same universe. Oh, really? Which you wouldn't know unless you'd seen Basket Case. But that scene on the subway, that weird scene where that guy sits down across from him with the basket, yes. giant basket on his lap, and they just sort of look at each other. Yes. <laughs> that is the uh, the main character of Basket Case. Oh, that's brilliant. So it's I sort of wondering. implied that these two films are happening at the same time in different parts of the city. Oh, that's <laughs> That makes that scene make sense to me. Right. It, it's God. really bizarre with, yeah, out of context because they just have this weird moment where these they just look right. at each other and then... But at this point <laughs> in the escalation of the narrative, things are getting so surreal that you really just kind of take it as one of those moments that was over your head. Or never made sense. Or, or one or the know, other, right. Was intended to never make sense. Right. But um, so, yeah, Hen and Lauder. And, and so in between, he made um, this film in 88. He made... Uh, great film called Frankenhooker in 92. I was going to ask you about Frankenhooker just because of the title. <laughs> and uh, 2008, his big comeback, uh, Bad Biology, uh, which was co-written with and produced by underground rapper R.A. the Rugged Man um, and is an awesome film. Is uniting it Uniting two of my, of my great loves in a way that I actually enjoy. <laughs> so how giddy were you when you heard in 2008 that he was coming out with another oh, film? Oh, I was so happy. Yeah, it, it was great. I was really, really looking forward to it. And it does have a lot of hip-hop sprinkled into it in the right way. Okay, folks, now it's time for me to produce the movie. Ain't no samples on the soundtrack so nobody can sue me. I'm on tour, I'm in demand. My name has never been hotter. I wrote a script with the co-director, Frank Henry. So it is impossible to talk about Hen and Lauder's work without talking about 
New York City <laughs> because he is very much the Woody Allen or the Spike Lee of the underground horror world. Um, all of his films are basically love letters to New York City. I caught on to this without knowing it, actually. Yeah. I knew he was from New York, but but his, his yeah, kind of um, um, inseparable connect to the city was it was very obvious yeah and he's very uh he's he he talks a lot in interviews about how he hated or how he hates giuliani for quote-unquote cleaning up the city um (laughs) and how he misses the old grimy i mean it's i'm sure that most of the people who are going to listen to this know but it bears repeating in the context of this film that you know midtown manhattan was not always the nice, clean, friendly, tourist, happy, you know, area that it is today. Uh, at the time this film was made and, you know, through the 70s and 80s, it was kind of a shithole. <laughs> it was uh, porno theaters and peep shows and grind houses and, uh, you know, seedy, seedy hotels uh, of the kind that basket, that basket case takes place in. And, um, but... But, you know, it was a lot more authentic than what we have today, which is the Disneyfied Times Square. And um, they, um, I actually read that, um, and this is where, part, back to the exploitation films, that um, his major influence was the exploitation films of the 60s and 70s that were played on 42nd Street. Mm-hmm, and um, right. what do you note about that 42nd Street scene? Uh, I mean, it's really legendary, just a row of, you know, it's where the term grindhouse comes from, these... Uh, theaters uh that would play the weird shit the underground you know midnight movies um the low rent the you know the independent uh once again bringing in um something that's been an intriguing discovery to me as we've um carried this um experiment on um is is the connect um in obstructions as as well as um context of art cinema and um and grindhouse cinema um slash horror cinema slash underground b cinema whatever but that um our modes of distribution are are very similar um the people that are intrigued often cross over Mm -hmm. um the um the urban elements where you can discover this kind of cinema, um, very similar, uh-huh. um, particularly if we're going back to the 80s of New York. Um, this is the same world that Jarmusch came from. You know, um, this is the same world that, that that dirty, filthy, before the pretty Giuliani New York, you know, and um, mm-hmm. all of them fed off of that same atmosphere. Spike Lee came from that world to some yeah. degree. Yeah. Um, so that it, it was a real um, it was a real haven and bubble of of independent cinematic genius um, during the 80s. There was tons of brilliant American um, independent cinema happening, and I'm thrilled to be discovering another aspect of that. Uh, Yeah, and it really, you know, it was not limited to the art world. It was not limited, you know, in terms of genre or in terms of outlook. Uh, This was as much a part of that as as the early uh, Jarmusch and Spike Lee stuff was. And Um, I guarantee you on 42nd Street you would stumble across ones that really probably thread the line between art cinema and shock cinema. Oh, oh yeah, definitely. So uh, this tone that Brain Damage has... Is the same tone as a lot of those 80s New York as crime-infested, scum-ridden shithole um, that you see in all kinds of stuff. Uh, in On my end of the spectrum, there's stuff like, like Chud and uh, The Warriors, 
um, you know, escape from New York if you want to go into the extrapolation into the future. But that's that's a very it's a very common tone for these films to have, and it's a very recognizable tone. Um, and that really, I think this film really feeds off a lot of a lot of that energy. So it's 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 kind of it's a it's an important touchstone when thinking about the aesthetic of this film. And you think that's a direct response to the atmosphere of New York in that time period? I do. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, because Times Square, I mean, it was Giuliani was not mayor yet. This uh, Ed Koch was mayor when this when this film was made. Um, but they had already you know, the rehabilitation. And you can't see me, but I'm doing the air quotes. Rehabilitation <laughs> of Midtown Manhattan had already started with a lot of the a lot of the big businesses coming in. And um, they were ramping up for that, and it progressively got worse, you know, until Giuliani, and then it really took off during the Giuliani administration. Um, but but this was sort of, and it's kind of, especially Frankenhooker, because Frankenhooker you know, was made right in the middle of that, and it's kind of almost like a, <laughs> you know, Frankenhooker comes off almost like an obituary to the Times Square that used to be. Interesting. Um, the forty second street scene that was that was pretty much on its last legs at that time. I kind of love this just because there's so much independent cinema from that same world that reflects the same tone that I can immediately jump into and uh-huh. understand the context you're talking about, yeah, which is great so um now body horror, you brought this up before, uh sort of connecting it to Cronenberg mm-hmm. uh this is you know this is the I think the f- the third '80s movie that I've given uh, Todd to watch. Uh, this reflects a slightly different, a slightly different you know facet of what was going on in horror cinema in the '80s. It was the rise of body horror. Um, Cronenberg is the name that always comes up whenever people talk about this particular uh, flavor of horror. Uh, but but there were a lot of other people doing it. Um, and the 80s was kind of the era of that. You had Stuart Gordon doing his thing, Jim Moreau, uh, Street Trash, um, all these all these different sort of angles on this same idea of the consciousness of bodily transformation, sickness, parasitism, the malleability of flesh. Uh, Hellraiser, which came out a year before this, sort of had a different spin on it. And each one of Hen and Lauder's movies has that body horror consciousness in a slightly different way. Basket Case is more about more about sort of the the distinction between um, between quote unquote normal and quote unquote abnormal flesh. Um, Frankenhooker is kind of you know science gone awry um, tale uh, with like a very screaming mad George sort of um, you know like body explosion kind of uh, feel to it. Um, bad biology is more Cronenbergian because it has that perverse sexual angle to it. Um, but this is really about parasitism and uh, you know talking about it as a drug allegory. Yeah, that's a huge, obviously, hits you over the head with that. But I think there's other things here, too. There's the idea of the corruption of the flesh, um, the idea of, you know, there's a lot of, there's that sexual element to it where the hooker goes down on him. and Or no, she's not a hooker. She's like a bar slut, right? 
Um, can, can we pause on oh. that scene? Because I, I want to talk about that scene. <laughs> yeah, 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 perfect. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm being a little cliche in, in pointing out this scene. I can uh-huh. only assume that in the cult horror world, which I really don't know, that this scene is probably pretty infamous, uh-huh. I would assume. Um, because I know it had me kind of jumping out of my seat. Um <laughs> applauding slash looking away slash oh my god slash yes yes <laughs> slash oh wow he's really doing it oh i can't believe he took that angle um yeah so that's how this scene went for me um freaking pretty brilliant at this point and, you, and you've been well set up um by the time you reach the scene but it does um hit another level of of kind of disturbance and um and yet at the same time there is a comedic flavor to this at the point in the film that there's very little comedy left in the film right. um because calling this film a comedy is is debatable in itself um but well, not calling it a cup, but yes, it, it, it's very interesting how it plays and, and disintegrates the comedic element as the film goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but that scene, it's, it's a club blowjob scene is what it is. Um, it's outside the club. Um, mm-hmm. Brian, the young man, um, completely wasted from the blue fluid. Um, she's having to even hold him up and things of that sort. And they go into close-ups following the progression of the blowjob coming down to his pants doing a close-up of his zipper to where you're already feeling relatively uncomfortable as you would in any edgy um creatively shot um sex scene that's Uh intending to allow you to feel the uh, discomfort of the moment um and i think this was one of those sex scenes um and at the same time some of the um the visuals were leaning towards the comedic again, um, which was a little interesting. But you don't feel very comedic when you're watching the scene at this point. <laughs> um, and so there's one shot in particular I really have to point out, um, and it's just a still frame um, that we can take. Um, that It goes into this cowboy shot. Now, a cowboy shot, many of you probably know, spaghetti westerns, all the la-la-la. But a close-up of uh, a 90-degree close-up of two faces facing each other where both are cut off by either extreme of the left and right frame. Okay. Okay. And so they do a cowboy shot, a 90 degree angle of the girl's face and his zipper that they do an exact 90 degree angle with the two looking at each other. Right. And I've never seen a cowboy shot used between a crotch and a face before. (laughs) And it was fucking genius. I was so giddy over that shot and I love cowboy shots. I have a real thing for this. Um, the, the, one short film that I actually got to make on film stock. Um, I, I have a pretty predominant cowboy shot in it, and, but I wish I had thought to make it with a crotch. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and then you get to see the close-up of the zipper coming down. And at this point, you know exactly what you're anticipating. Um, you know what's going to happen. I mean, it's, it's a horror buildup to where you know what's going to happen, and it's still going to get you. <laughs> and um, and so as you're watching the whole progression, he t- really takes his time with these moments, too, which I love. Mm-hmm. Really takes his time. I'm very patient. And so then, of course, as she's coming up to um, take his um, male parts into um, her or <laughs> whatever, that yeah. she un, un- she does his zipper, and Elmer comes out full force. And for the like he's spring loaded, spring loaded out of the fucking fly. shoots out of the zipper. <laughs> and this is something we haven't brought up to for those of you who don't have an image of Elmer in, in your heads um, visually. Um, anybody that has seen South Park, um, Mr. Hanky, uh-huh. um, the Christmas Pooh, he looks a lot like that. Um, kind of a green, slimy, elongated, um, squirmy worm look, and so he has a very phallic look. Like mm-hmm. that's actually an understatement. It's purely phallic look, and so when he jumps out of the the zipper, it looks like a giant, disgusting, grotesque, alien, green, slimy penis. 
And um, and so, my God, so disturbing, so messed <laughs> up. And he immediately jumps out, screams, is whatever, and begins to attaches himself with teeth to her forehead and sucks her brains out. Um, and the entire thing is shot as her brains are being sucked out. It's shot as if Brian is getting a blowjob. Um, mm-hmm. That Brian's reaction is pretty much as if he's getting a blowjob. Right. Um, the scene is as if, as if she's giving a blowjob. And yet her brains are actually getting sucked out. Um, but they never quit shooting it as if she's just simply giving a blowjob. And um, pretty amazing. Hence, pretty amazing scene. That is, yeah. I mean, it's definitely one of the best set pieces, one of the most infamous set pieces. And really, I mean, that you know, really gets you. It you really this makes is one of those impression. ones that you know he wrote the scene before he found a place to put it. <laughs> He's like, that will make the movie. <laughs> yeah. So I love, I love the way this film progresses from so... So Brian encounters Elmer, and he gets hooked on the juice. He has a couple really good experiences with Elmer's juice. There's that junkyard scene where all of a sudden what is just a drab sort of mundane junkyard all of a sudden turns into like an 80s hair metal video, and there's all kinds of lasers. I'm glad you brought up the junkyard scene because that was one of the first times that I started realizing that cinematography was so smart Uh um, that they started really using their location shooting unbelievably well um they had obviously scouted and framed very intelligently um once again back to very very solid and smart visual points of depth um just just very sophisticated cinematography honestly Uh and um but but that was where it started breaking for me that i was kind of like uh this is getting kind of intricate you know and um it it was cool and so and so yeah so there's that scene and then it it mirrors so well sort of how you know, the a drug addiction starts out, you know, fun, and this is an escape from my mundane reality, and then it slowly gets worse and worse and more and more perilous, and and basically does, you know, the dependence happens. Elmer gets his hooks in him, and now he's he he's on this downward spiral. But I think it's interesting that as that happens, there's this increased internality because by the end of the film, Elmer's living in brian's throat right Mm -hmm. yes i i seem to remember some pretty (laughs) frankly pretty shitty looking i think just animation drawn on the frame animation in the subway scene when elber pops out of his mouth for a second and you know oddly let's God, there's so many segues I could take from that whole statement just because there's a couple of things I want to hit on. I just finished my point, which was that it's interesting that as Leo, like with an addiction, his world is getting smaller and smaller. He's pushing the people in his life away. And even the thing that's feeding his addiction gets closer and closer to him until we have a truly parasitic relationship. I just think it's interesting how that's echoed in the visual, the the visual progression. Absolutely. And, And back to the completion of the, once again, that he did it really well. The completion of, of the, um, addiction drug allegory, um, that, yeah, just once again, I think he was very honest to it and, mm-hmm. and, and it was a pretty, um, pretty intense portrayal, honestly, um, of yeah. that, of that, um, or exploring that premise. I'm trying to understand you, Brian, but I feel like I'm talking to a stranger. Two months ago, you wanted us to live together. Now you're telling me you haven't called because of lights and colors. And I just don't understand. There's this kind of B-story-esque 
historical mm. setup yeah, to Elmer that I really thought the film could have done without, to tell you the truth. It just wasn't mm. necessary. That Elmer has this very long-running history that he's intertwined with the Fourth Crusade and then on into the Nazi party. And, and so there's this old man who originally has Elmer at the very beginning of the film um, that lives across the hall from Brian. So before he leaves their place and escapes and goes over to Brian, because they were sucking Elmer dry and not letting him get strong enough on brains to escape them, that he leaves their apartment, comes over to Brian, and that's where the relationship begins. But all this just kind of gets thrown into the story. Like, none of it's necessarily relevant. Um, and I know why it was there, because you need something to give him substance and, and backstory and all that. But there's a scene where Brian and the old man actually talk, and it is very um, expositional. It's, it's it, or very expository um, dialogue um, with the old man giving you the entire history of Elmer. Um, it's pretty quick and pretty short, and they get over it pretty fast. And, and the scene itself is pretty cool, other than that. Um, but I could have done without it, because I was so impressed that he didn't have that gratuitous exposition throughout the film, that I was kind of like, eh, we didn't really need it. You know, I was yeah. like, I would have rather you just stayed away from it um, or else just leave it at the touching on it in the very beginning was fine. You know, giving you that little setup with the couple having Elmer and him escaping. Mm-hmm. And then I wish he had just dropped it and kind of left it alone at that point. But with that being said, that's the only time. And so still pretty amazing. Well, I kind of like I like that element to the film. I won't argue with you that it, it could have been handled a little more gracefully but i think it's more than just about oh we have to give elmer a backstory it 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 sort of enriches the characterization of elmer because he is a trickster i you know I, he's I stand a, by that he's a wheedler he's a he's a wheeler and a dealer he's very charming and you get this sense, and it's actually kind of chilling when you really think about it, that this is an entity that yes. has been around yes. for like all of human history and, and probably before. Thanks, Colin. Now I feel dumb. Well, no, but like has existed in many different guises and spoken many different languages and is so good at this by now that Brian is just like is so easy to manipulate. He's not even yes. trying. And that's why Elmer can be so cool and detached yes. and just so like it gives mellow. him a bigger than life universality yeah, yeah. and and you're right <laughs> that if it was just the singularity of the experience with brian it would not have played with that same universal um, um understanding that this because that 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 you're right that adds very much to the intensity of this story the idea that this has been going on for centuries that elmer yeah. has been living this life yeah um and he can be a metaphor for whatever has been plaguing mankind forever well, Addiction, once again the obvious allegory or just the whole idea that like why are why is everything that's bad for me feel so good yes you know? absolutely like and you can inject anything you want into their part in the pun <laughs> uh-huh. and if i indulge this why is there any innate sacrificial element to it when it's um related to my uh relationships and and um everyday surroundings In a really kind of intense scene between Brian and his girlfriend, um, kind of the final scene in which they, um, she makes her one last attempt to save him. And at this point, he's kind of aware of where he is on some level to where he wants her to be as far away from him as possible so that because he knows he cannot um, be accountable for his actions at this point and knows mm-hmm. that he's um, in a dangerous place yeah. um, and that he, the symbiotic relationship between him and Elmer has um, pretty much taken away his um, 
his immediate consciousness to um, make good decisions towards those that he cares about. And so this is that final kind of um, attempt at, at humanity for him, his last chance to be saved. And the whole time Elmer is inside of him, it keeps popping out of his mouth and the girlfriend never sees it. Um, but that you can tell he's trying to keep Elmer down because he doesn't want Elmer to hurt his, his girlfriend. Uh-huh. And, um, and at this point they animate Elmer, they animate him. They, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's very chintzy, very, um, on the film stock over, or actually overlaid on the film stock. Um, I'm probably an optical printer overlay of some sort, but, um, the, um, I don't know how they did it back then. I'm guessing, but, um, but that it's very chintzy, very, like I said, just, I mean, I honestly could have opened up the film stock myself and, and drawn this on with, with, you know, a marker and it kind of looks like what they did. And, um, and I've done stuff like that experimental film class too. And, and it looked about like, like this. (laughs) And, um, but, um, and I was wondering, obviously they had the means to do it differently. That was a decision. He chose to do that. I don't think that was a mistake that they filled in. I think they consciously said, here's how we're going to do this scene. Um, or I would, that's just a guess once again. And I'm wondering why he chose to do it. Let me say, first of all, this did not bother me by the time this hit. Uh-huh. Like yeah. it, it, it actually, and it should have, but it did not. Well, um, the film's already was, built up enough good faith. And maybe he knew that. Else. Yeah. Right. That I was well invested enough to forgive it fully to the point that even the first time it shot out of his mouth, it, I kind of was just like, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. You know? Well, also, you're right, because the the emotional intensity of that scene, because you can tell he really does not want Elmer to hurt her, and he's doing everything he can to stop it from happening. So it's a very, like, you know, the the, the tension in that scene is pitched so high. And some of the better acting in the film. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, the actors get better as the film goes on, too. <laughs> right, right, I think yeah. I just forgave more as the film went well, on. Well, I do think everything gets more interesting. Um, I would say, I think maybe... Um, and I'm just I'm speculating here. I think maybe he wanted to do it in one take. If you were going to do Elmer the way that it had been done so far yes. in the film, you would have had to keep cutting away and probably cut to a close up of him popping out of the mouth and then cut quickly back. And he wanted the calm, static, uh, constant, yeah, long shot. That is probably yep. th- that would be my guess. But it is a shame because it's you know obviously very time-consuming to do that kind of overlay mm-hmm. animation. Um, as time-consuming as doing it in front of the camera, probably, especially yeah. seeing as they had already obviously perfected this um, approach to the special effects. You know, they did a great job bringing him to life, and a big part of that... Yes, they did. A big part of that is the actor. So let's talk about Elmer's voice. The voice of Elmer is provided by John Zacherly, um, which I think is how you pronounce it. That's for John Zacherly. <laughs> very nice. Yeah, he um, is a legend. I don't know if you did any research on him. I meant to and had to go to bed. He is a um, very legendary personality in the world of horror. Uh, in the 50s, he was one of the first television horror hosts and sort of became one of the nationwide faces of that movement, along with Vampira. Um, on the West Coast, uh, in the East Coast, it was John Zacherly. He was uh, in in Philadelphia, I believe, but his uh, his show was syndicated nationwide. And the horror host is kind of an interesting sort of tradition that we have um, in America. Uh, it basically started in the fifties, you know, very shortly after the dawn of of television. Um, there were these. Packages of films that um, 
the the first and most famous one was called Shock Theater. It was a film package that was syndicated and sent to the networks and it was a package of like 50 some old horror films, the universal stuff, you know, 30s and 40s, Frankensteins and Wolfmans and all of that. <laughs> Wolfmen. Uh and so these were syndicated and shown late night essentially as filler on TV. Um, and these were what the, the quote unquote monster kids, all of those, uh, filmmakers and fans that were coming of age in the fifties watching TV as kids, um, like Frank Henenlotter, this is what they grew up watching. And, uh, so there were hosts, um, pretty much local, local broadcasting personalities that would create these characters and inhabit these characters and introduce the films as these characters. So, uh, you know, Vampira usually gets credit for being the first, but very, you know, pretty much concurrently with her was Zachary, um, who, uh, he sort of, you know, portrayed kind of a vampire figure, a ghoul. And he really became, like I said, one of the nationwide so faces ho- of this. He hosted it in character like Vampire. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. is, this is great. I feel like I'm sitting in like a, a media history class. right? Now. Like this is awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah he, was, he was, he was one of the nationwide faces of this. And in the sixties, he even had a hit record, uh, called uh, Dinner with Drac, where he it's basically a series of limericks where he talks about how he went for went to dinner at Dracula's house. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this is gonna become one of my new favorite cult figures. I've got to yeah. do some Googling. He he's really awesome. So he um and I mean, you know, the horror host, it's kind of a shame because it's so much harder because you know, people don't discover things on television anymore, but the horror host tradition continues. I, you know, I grew up with Elvira and Joe Bob Briggs. He is Those well. were the two ones that I remember. From Elvira's the late nighter. I remember. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I actually yeah. worked on a small little, um, uh, what was going to be actually a, a series, um, but it was a small little short film that was a play on this, and I just didn't understand the context at the time. I was just doing oh, production really? design on uh-huh. it, and it, cool. it was very much a play on the old horror theater with the um, hosts and character, uh-huh. and it was a comedic take on it, you know. Um, oh, okay. And I was actually very sad to see it. it. It never become anything. It was actually a pretty damn interesting project. Yeah, but, yeah. So, Zachary, <coughs> Zachary, um, <coughs> just totally i don't know can you eat the scenery with your voice (laughs) do you have to be in front of the camera in order to chew the scenery i don't think so (laughs) he he is magnificent he's so urbane he's so suave yes and the you know the animation of elmer serves that too because he sort of writhes and wiggles and dances and he's got this goofy smile yes one of the things i love about elmer yeah 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 he's He's got this really goofy smile, and when you look at him, he just looks charming and silly, but then when his jaw unhinges and the needle comes out to inject you with the juice, you realize that that's not a smile. That's just the shape of his yes. of his facial anatomy. And then when it opens up and the needle comes out, it just becomes... Inc- and he's got all these like all these pointy teeth, like yes. needle little pointy teeth. It just becomes really grotesque. But think about that from a metaphorical aspect, too, is that permagrin on top of um, or, or covering or sheathing um, the, the vicious and, and, and flesh-eating teeth beneath. Yeah. Um, that that he's a charmer, man. He, yeah. You know, he 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 
hope he dazzles you. He seems so friendly and approachable, but lurking just beneath the surface. You know, I'm, I'm willing to bet if I were in my young 20s and he were to come up to me with that, <laughs> that alluring voice and yeah. then the temptation of what he has to offer, I, I might have fallen in as well. Oh, yeah. We could all be, Brian. Uh, we you all know. may be. Well, well. Ready to beg for it, Brian? Ready to crawl across the floor and plead for my juice? No? Not yet? Well, give it a few more hours, Brian. Whenever you want the pain to stop, I'll be here. Why are the stars always winking and blinking above? What makes a fella start thinking of falling in love? It's not the season, the reason is plain as a moon. It's just Elmer's tune. So I think what, what puts this film in an interesting position is the fact that it's a monster movie. Very reminiscent of the kind of... 50s and 60s alien slug invasion it's got all of that sort of you know it's not it's it's in the 80s but it's not a slasher movie it's nope. not a you know any anywhere like an 80s teen you know like dead teenager whatever popcorn munching kind of movie it has a a much more classic feel and the monster contributes to that. So it reaches backwards and brings in this old school 50s horror royalty in the form of Zachary. And it has this, um, you know, has this classic monster motif. But it also reaches forward with the body horror element and with the sort of grimy, grungy, lowbrow, like, you know, sexy, dirty. 80s uh, feel. This is that exploitation aspect, right? And right. which I feel like kind of saved it stylistically. Yeah, yeah. So it has it sort of hangs between these two traditions. It you know integrates the old, the old school of horror and the new school in uh, a really creative, interesting way that I never. And that's that's part of the reason I say it's kind of unlike any other film I know. So, have we come to that part where I ask you your final thoughts on brain damage? I think, so let's see, what was the last thing I wrote before putting my head to sleep at 3 a.m., 4 a.m. in the morning? Um, Damn interesting film. The good was so good, but the bad was pretty bad. (laughs) And then finally, are we ready for it? Can I have a drum roll? Can I have a drum roll? No. Good wins pretty big. I raise a brow high. Oh, nice. I'm actually going to say, and, and this is tough for me, um, but um, because I was very smitten by Cannibal Holocaust, guilty, um, or feel guilty for saying it, of course, mm-hmm. um, as, as I stated last week. But, but um, God, I don't know if I want to say this or not. I think this was the most pleasurable film experience, um, film viewing experience that I've had since we started this. Mm. Um, um, Happy um, 15 minutes in, happy in the middle, and happy at the end. Um, Things to reflect upon, um, intelligent, smart filmmaking, um, flaws, of course. um, But overall, my God, the the, the pros so outweigh the cons. Huge raised brow. Very, very high raised brow. Raise high, raise, was it raise high the roof beam carpenters? Yeah, a little Uh freaking, yeah, Salinger for you. Nice. But, uh. Yeah, loved it. So there you go. Absolutely effing loved it. 
Effing loved brain damage. Fucking loved it. <laughs> Fucking loved brain damage. So brain damage gets a high brow. High brow. Elmer. I love Elmer. <laughs> a dinner was served for three. At Dracula's house by the sea. The orders were fine, but I choked on my wine when I learned that the main course was me. Okay, so uh, this time around, Todd had me watch uh, the 2002. French-Belgian co-production um, by the brothers Dardenne, known as The Sun. Uh, so this film is about um, a guy named Olivier, uh, portrayed by Olivier Gourmet. Uh, Olivier is late, like mid to late thirties, I guess. He uh, teaches carpentry at a what appears to be a technical school, like a trade school for at-risk youth. Um, one day, uh, the headmistress at the school brings Olivier a file on a new student who's enrolled and... He wants to learn carpentry, and Olivier says, um, sorry, I don't have any room. Uh, he refuses to take the student, uh, but he is interested, <laughs> uh, and you don't know why. Um, he goes and checks the kid out. Uh, he sort of spies on him to get a look at him, and... Um, he he goes home um we see that he lives alone in somewhat modest circumstances uh he gets a visit from his ex ex-wife or ex-girlfriend we're not sure at this juncture um she tells him they kind of you know catch up and you can tell right off the bat that their relationship is a little bit strained um and she informs him that uh she is pregnant by her new man and uh he olivier acts happy but you can tell that he's bothered by this he's still not entirely entirely sure why so the next day he goes back to work and uh you can tell that Against his better judgment, um, he tells the headmistress that he's changed his mind and he will take this new student into carpentry class. Um, and so he takes him in and he starts teaching him carpentry. Um, but he still has this weird, surreptitious... Uh, obsession with the kid it seems like he watches him sleep he follows him home um 
it, it it's played very ambiguously and you really don't know what um why he's so interested in this kid but it's creepy <laughs> there you think there might be a little like pedo weirdness going on it's it's played it's played ambiguously enough that it doesn't show you know it doesn't lay its cards on the table but it's 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 pretty creepy um so this goes on their relationship grows a little bit closer um you can tell that the kid likes um olivier um he looks up to him as a teacher. Uh, there comes a point about halfway through the film, and I am going to spoil. Um, there comes a point about halfway through the film where Olivier goes and has another conversation with his ex and informs her. Um, we find out that this boy, whose name is Francis, um, was the killer of Olivier and his wife's son. As an 11-year-old, he killed their son. When he got locked up for it, I guess juvie or whatever the French-slash-Belgian equivalent of of juvie is, Uh, he was locked up for five years uh, for killing their son. And now he's out, he's 16, and he wants to learn a trade. So he came to uh, learn carpentry, and he has no idea that his teacher is the father of the boy that he killed. Um, And the rest of the film unfolds. We watch their relationship develop, and by their relationship, I mean Olivier and Francis, the young boy. And the question in the viewer's mind is no longer, why is Olivier interested in this kid? The question is now, what are his motivations for cultivating a relationship with this kid? And what is he going to do? Uh, That's where I'm going to leave off with the synopsis. So you think that's a pretty good summary? I think that was a great summary. Um, You touched on a lot of things that I really was hoping that you would. Uh Um, the first thing that, that I want to say um, about this film um, cuts all the way down to the premise, but also cuts down to something um, that I find to be um, kind of narr- narratively, actually absolutely narratively brilliant about this film. Um, and I can say it in one word, um, irony, as, as well as creative, as well as unique, as well as a story that hasn't been told before. Um, and, and to do it in such a flat, ambiguous, stoic manner to where the intrigue itself lies in that ambigu- ambiguity um, and, and the, the narrative interest lies in not knowing. Um, and, and talk about um, minimalism, vague, um, no gratuitous exposition whatsoever. Um, that's kind of the key to the intrigue of this film um, is that you just don't know and you don't need to know. So you're actually on the outside looking in and at the same time feel subjectively invested in Olivier and his mission. And like Colin said, it, it reaches a point about halfway through the film before it breaks and, and you get enough, just a touch of exposition to figure all this out. Um, 
that it really is excessively creepy. <laughs> and because it's shot so minimalist, so realist, um, the Dardeen brothers use all natural lighting. They tend to use non-actors when they can. Um, when they Obviously, they use trained actors as well, um, but they very Brissonian, um, very much um, try to strip them down to their most naturalistic, um, reactionary um, um, approach to um, drama. Um, and so everything's very flat, very stoic in that way, and the intrigue lies in this ambiguous um, whole of subjective experience that Olivier is going through. And when it breaks, the tension doesn't break. Like when Colin brought up narratively that once you figure it out, the creepy goes away, but the intensity does not because it just simply shuffles over, once again, as Colin mentioned, shuffles over from why is he so interested in this boy in a voyeuristic kind of manner to why does he not hate this boy? Why, or what is his motivations with this, with this boy? Um, is he going to end up trying to get revenge? Is he going to end up um, finding this as a redemption story? Is this going to be a story of grace? Or is this going to be a story of, of, of violence? Um, and, and you don't even get a hint what direction it's going to go. Um, and, and because um, there is that, that, that tension and that creepiness that, um, that, you don't even get a tonal hint of where it's going to go, mm-hmm. and um, and yeah, I, it plays the whole it, yeah the whole film. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Oh no, please! Everything is played very very close to the vest, and yes. you don't get information until you absolutely need it. Yes, you, you nailed it. You absolutely nailed it. And and this goes for every Dardine. Um, Dardine. <laughs> I'm going to say Dardine. Um, every Dardine. Dardine. Um, but every Dardine um, film ever made. They started off um, in documentary cinema, so I'll give you a little bit of background, um, which um, helps you to understand their realist approach. Um, they typically deal with... Um, um, Subject matters, um, whether it be um, personal struggle, um, um, the fringes of society, um, socioeconomic challenges, um, social issues, um, it tends their, their their films tend to be motivated by wanting to bring some element of of social interaction or social injustice to light in some way, and at the same time, there being a very strong interpersonal um, kind of philosophical conflict in all of their films as well. Um, and and many times they're making films that could almost be seen as as um, a kind of social activism underlying this very subtle premise. And they actually claim that that's not their case at all, that they're not trying to make any changes as much as simply trying to explore things and, and, and um, reveal the honesty behind them. And if change happens to come from them, then great. You know, but they're not actively, intentionally mm. making these films for that purpose. That's interesting. Um, there's, there's a quote I want to share. Um, that um, by them, when they were asking the Redding brothers about the premise of this film and, and why they made this film, um, and, and it, it actually can all be summed up um, with a piece of dialogue from the film itself. This is his wife talking to him um, that about when, when they have that moment where he basically tells her that Francis is in his class and that this is the boy that had killed their son. And then they are divorced at this point. You can kind of piece together for yourself that they probably separated over the pain and the loss of their son. Probably. They don't ever specifically say it, of course. But you can make that very logical assumption to some degree. And so um, they're carrying on this conversation. And the ex-wife says to Olivier, "Um, nobody would do that, would take this boy in. Um, And he answers, I know. And she replies, then why do you do it? He answers, I don't know. And um, that right there, according to Luke Dardine himself, 
was the premise of the, of the film. And, um, and Luke Dardine wrote, we don't know either. It's such a great statement of so many people that, that have truly found a passionate niche in, in, in the world and, and, and somehow are drawn to this and innately can't do anything else. They have to follow this. Um, that with the Dardine brothers, this is the case. And with Olivier, this is the case. He doesn't know why he's doing it, it's, but he's doing it. There's a lot to talk about with this film. Um, I really do want to get into the moral, the complicated moral situation and the dilemma that is at the heart of, of this story. Um, and I think a good place to start with that is at the mode in, in the modes of production. Cause this is, I think is a great example of form following function of style following substance. Um, and the two, you know, iteratively, you know, influencing each other. Um, so this film has no score. I'm so glad you showed me Brisson before showing me this, because I can definitely see the lineage there. I, I'm glad you said that as well, because so, of all modern filmmakers, they're probably the most Brissonian. Uh-huh. Yeah, so this film has no score, not even over the closing credits. It's just silence over the closing credits. There's not even any diegetic music. Nobody turns on the radio at any point. Absolutely no music in the entire film. It is shot in... Very long takes. I'd say the average shot length for this film is probably like two minutes, which is ridiculously long. Um, Amazing blocking. It is shot in... Well, I'll get to that. It is shot in... Unless I miss something, entirely handheld. Um, And most importantly, and most like really visibly and jumps right out at you is I, this film is shot, I would say conservatively 90% of it is shot in close up. Um, which is really, really unusual for a film. And it's come, it's, it's, it's really, I mean, I mean, I'd be interested in knowing if this is like, if this is how the Dardenne brothers shoot their movies, or if this is you know, particular to this film, they thought that that style would work for this story. Um, I mean, I don't know much about experimental cinema. I wouldn't call this a flat out non-narrative experimental film, but the style of it feels very experimental to me. Um, it's almost all of it is in close up, uncomfortably, really tight close up, extreme close, extreme tight close up. Yeah. And when there is a medium shot or once in a blue moon, a wide shot, the frame is obstructed. There's something taking up, you know, from a third to, you know, three quarters of the frame. It is, the compositions are very boxed in. There's frames within frames within frames. And the handheld camera, it peeks around corners. It look, it you know, it peeps through keyholes. It's very voyeuristic and very, um, very sort of naturalistic. Sort of how we view the world. Like, we don't think about how, how seldom cinema actually mimics how we look at things in in real life and um you know (laughs) very seldom like right now in the extreme foreground i have a mic in my face you know if you were shooting this in a film from my perspective you wouldn't put the mic in there because why would you have this giant you know black 
dong hanging in the middle of the frame, but the Dardenne brothers put that in there. Yes, and how often, even in our everyday perceptions, do we pay attention to the foreground, middle ground, and background of our every look and, and, and yeah. Right, right. Perception. So there will be... There will be shots in this film where three quarters of the frame is the wall. (laughs) It's the wall right in front of you, just a black or brick wall. And then the focal point of the shot is it takes up a tiny little part of the frame. It's really, really interesting compositions. I love it that you brought that up and and particularly the boxed in nature and not only um, the extreme close ups, which are slightly easier to obviously observe. But I'm still impressed as hell that that you caught on to the 90 percent tight close-ups but the obstructed frames um being um coupled with that um that the entire film boxed in is the right word um there there's an a really in, i'm going to use the word intense way too much but there's a really intense um claustrophobia to it yeah, as you're watching oppressive. it uh, oh unbelievably and and once again blows my mind when i can subjectively feel what the uh protagonist is is experiencing um when when you truly invest me so deeply that 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 I am feeling the same claustrophobia of his subjective experience, mm-hmm. and um, and and obviously that's exactly how he's feeling in this moment—a a very closed in, tight. If anything, the walls are coming in tighter around him, um, and and for anybody to even fathom the reality of this situation that he's going with, right. I, I mean, I, it's hard for me to even um, contemplate it on a personal level um, when you think about mortality and loss and and how that relates to your own. Um, purpose meaning and function in life um that that the 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 narrative um um concept behind this i i it's chilling to me honestly it's just chilling so so i think what i alluded to earlier and i think todd did a great job of uh of explicating that is that the style really follows Yes. The the themes of the film. And not only I will add to what you said, not only is the uncomfortable closeness of the camera mirroring sort of the uncomfortable closeness of the situation, but also the central relationship between the man and the boy. Yes. They are becoming uncomfortably close to each other. And for, you know, 95 of the film's 100 minutes we don't know why right yes <laughs> um and the stress at 95 out of the film's 100 minutes we don't know why yeah and yet you're still intrigued <laughs> right <laughs> like right. you can't help but to hold on right and you're thinking i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't call it a thriller there's elements though uh it's in some of, weird way well it's like brisson you know the style of this film is not that of a thriller <laughs> no <laughs> um but i but the I tension is that of a thriller. yeah it's it's very thrilling let me ask you this though and particularly after your review of 400 blows last week was it boring at any moment? No, no, not at all. Thank you. Not, not even. <laughs> um, they and, never quit moving the story. Yeah, that's what's crazy. It's but, like you don't even realize they're doing it. But there are things in this film that should be boring. Yeah, um, there are really long takes and moments where nothing happens. Right. For like, that's why I asked a minute. <laughs> you know, there's just like a probably a two minute long shot of just Olivier sitting in a chair. Yeah, and that's all it is. And see, and this is where I can with these guys, I can almost break out of of you know the, the over analytical aspect and just be like, 
And it's the same that this is kind of a rule of thumb with me with all art is what what divides good from great? What divides, you know, brilliant or genius from really well done? Um, and the only thing I've ever been able to come up with, whether it be, you know, still art, whether it be photography, whether it be film, whether it be writing, whether it be um, any form of artistic expression is how honest are they? You know, and mm. um, and I feel like the Dardeen brothers are, are about as honest as it gets in the cinema world today. Um, it, there, there's no bullshit here. And I can only imagine as individuals that they uh, probably have some sort of a uh, personal journey that's uh, that's probably about as honest. Um, I can't fathom how you would make a film this honest if you weren't living your life um, searching for um, something of the equal intensity. And um, and the same goes for Brisson, that, that when you express something this honest, um, in, in, on um, on film, that that it's pretty hard to do that if you're not living your life looking and searching the same. Yeah. And um, well, I mean, I think I think you are properly giving a, a great amount of credit to the the brothers, uh, directors, and writers. Um, but this would absolutely not work without the right actor. Oh, you're so right. Um, like, there's so much. There's very little dialogue, and he gives he gives so little away. But there's so much going on under the surface. Like, how can you be stoic and not flat? Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Uh huh. Yeah. There's so much going on under the surface, and there's just these little looks that he gives, and these little expressions, and he gives you just enough to make you speculate and to make it feel really true. Um, and. Um, I mean, I think, you know, you sort of live through this moral dilemma with him. And uh, I think, all right, so let's talk about the character. Um, you were saying that it was it is implied in the film that he and his wife split up because of the grief, like due to the grief of having lost their child. I, I don't know if I would go so far as asserting that it was implied, uh, but I would go so far it's as saying reason- that it was a reasonable assumption on my yeah. behalf while yeah. watching the film. A reasonable conclusion to draw. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I figured that as well. I think I think there's, there's some other things I feel like... Well, there's dialogue. One of the few, like, flat-out pieces of expository exchange that happens is between in the first scene with him and his ex where um, she asks him, why don't you go back to working with your brother at the lumber yard? You were making more money there. I don't know if she says that, but you know, it's implied. And he says, well, because this makes me feel useful. I don't remember what the actual line is, but it's something like that. Playing back into the premise I was talking about earlier, actually, mm-hmm. very nicely, this makes me feel useful. Right, right, yeah. He doesn't know if he is useful, but at least he can <laughs> feel useful, right? So, um, and that kind of set my mind spinning in a lot of different directions. And I thought, okay, I mean, you know, I, I am someone who... I, I you know, work with kids. I work with adolescents. And um, it's not, you know, like pretty much nobody does it for the money, right? Like, you know, people work, those who feel motivated to work with young people, particularly adolescents, because they can be giant fucking pains in the asses, you know, do it out of a sense of wanting to be of service, wanting to be useful. And, um, I just started thinking like this guy, I don't know why it's never, it's never, it's never said, it's not even implied, but the conclusion that I came to was that he took this job at the school 
after losing his son. Very much. I made, once again, I made, I, I can only assume that it, or I can only deduct that it was implied because we both came to the same uh-huh. conclusion as yeah. most other people I've discussed this film with. And so my, and so here's, here's, here's what I created in my head. He went through the unimaginably traumatic experience of having your child, having your young child murdered by an 11-year-old. And he felt, as you would, just an emptiness and wanted to fill that void with something that made him feel useful, something that made him feel productive. And he went and took this job working with kids so that maybe he could affect the life of an at-risk youth that was going in a wrong direction and save another person's son or daughter that might be harmed by one of these wayward, violent, you know, confused out of control young people intro ironic twist and it just so happens (laughs) and it just so happens that you know the the actual one responsible for putting him there all of a sudden shows back up at his doorstep and when you frame it like that it becomes way less likely that he would want to take revenge right very much and i mean it's really it's just really moving at the end and yeah i mean i'm gonna go ahead and spoil the end he does not take revenge he it turns out he really genuinely does just want to help the kid and um the kid is obviously very damaged i mean he spent five years locked up and before that he was running wild and stealing car radios and choking out four-year-olds so i just I came up with four. I don't know why. (laughs) They never say how old the kid was. Um, But, like, um, you know, he obviously has trust issues, has a real hard time believing that Olivier really wants to help him. But, oh, you know, there's a chase. They end up out in the woods. Olivier catches him. He's on top of him. A very primal sort of... um, like back to nature, savage in the woods, physical confrontation. And there's that moment where, and I think Olivier even feels this because he has his hands around the kid's throat. There's that moment where he says, well, he doesn't say, but in my, my, my internal dialogue, he says to himself, I could kill this. I could kill this boy. And then he doesn't. And that's the only thing that manages to get, the manage is to earn this boy's trust, not killing him. And that just drives home how horribly hard a life this kid must have. And it really makes you feel for him. I mean, you don't see him in any way, shape or form anymore as the murderer of the child. You and so much of that, a, I think, is is that you're so invested in Olivier that at that moment, that breaking point, you're like, he forgave him. How can I not? Right. Right. You know? Right. And I mean... I'm getting teary-eyed. Sorry. (laughs) Like, seriously. Um, My God, so intense. Like, you just brought that scene so back to the forefront of my mind. Um, Yeah, I think, um, first of all, I want to point out that that Cullen just told all of you a very, very rich, 
full detail-oriented um, story. None of that's in the film. None of it's stated <laughs> in the film. None of it. And um, however, it's all there. Like Colin <laughs> right. is dead on. And so once again, I, I, I can't even begin to to touch how how flawless I think the storytelling is. Um, um, I mean, oh wow. Um, if only I could do what you do, Dardine Brothers. <laughs> so the Dardine Brothers would typically be called minimalism. They'd be called realism. They would be called um, um, experimental art cinema, um, experimental art narrative cinema. Um, these all by U.S. standards, of uh-huh. course. Um, but um, but when we talk about it, I, I want to bring this point up because this is something I'm fascinated by. But when we talk about them in terms of realism, say, versus the neorealism of um, Italian cinema, in striving towards pure realism, they neglected to honor the the techniques, the modes of production, and the language of cinema that can be utilized to create a tone of realism, and instead actually shot it flat realism. Uh, no acting, no staging, but forgetting to embrace the fact that all of those things are unavoidable, that, yeah. that, that there is some Cinema's sense of... Cinema is by sight. its nature artificial. Right. And so by embracing the techniques, the, the, the language, the styles um, that are possible um, within um, filmmaking, that you actually can achieve a higher level of realism. The Dardenne brothers, very reminiscent of Brisson, embrace this formalistic, stylistic approach to cinema, this auteuristic approach to cinema, and say, I want to use all this language. It's not going to be gratuitous. It's not going to be overly stylized. It's not going to be any of these things. I'm going to be very moderate about it, but how dare you... deny me stylization how dare you deny me the tool of stylization because with that i can create a tone of realism that's twice as intense as any sort of attempt at pure realism that is to some degree impossible this is not the type of film where the filmmakers are afraid of intruding like they're not afraid to sort of make it clear that they've thought very carefully and very deliberately about what they're putting on screen. The like I was saying, there are all these motifs, all these visual motifs, you know, carpentry itself is very symbolic. This idea of construction and, you know, like using materials from the natural world and turning them into something artificial. Yes. The the repeated, you know, uh, motif of his back brace that he's always adjusting and keeping on and you feel like the weight of the world on this guy and the rivets pop off of it you know because his life is getting out of control and then he has to tighten it back up and you know repair it and think about what you just said like you're so invested in telling this his rivets pop off and he's adjusting (laughs) his back brace like it's this huge momentum (laughs) action well it is it makes you feel that way it it is and the film becomes so heavy and yes when it's such when the film is full of such small gestures something you know that's 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 obvious like that that's you know it is given a lot more weight but without that quiet and that pacing mm-hmm. that weight would never be felt right right uh, yeah qu'est-ce que tu as fait pour être enfermé à Frépont à 11 ans une connerie quelle connerie un vol the boy um is giving a very similar performance to Olivier. He's he's keeping it really contained. He plays it very ambiguous. Um, Even more amazing as a child actor. Yeah. How do you get a performance like that out of a kid, man? Yeah, I mean, he's... You know? and, and what's even more interesting is that he... 
he looks even young for the age that he's supposed to be. At one point, in one of the other very, very sparse uh, bits of um, expository dialogue, he says that he got locked up at 11 and he was in there for five years. And he just got out, so he's 16 now. He looks about 13. Yeah. Um, he looks very, very young. And that sort of, you know, like gets your mind going too about how, like, you know, five years of this guy's childhood have been taken away. Mm-hmm. He pretty much still is yeah. 11. You know? still, yeah, absolutely. As far as the larger world is concerned. But then you think about everything he went through in the joint and like how that's a totally different like it's like he was forced to grow up fast but also he was forced to remain a kid because he doesn't have a trade you know he's just now learning how to do something that he can you know like build a life off of he only knows how to survive right right and he seems so he seems so innocent but you're informed of all these things that he's done and all this stuff he's been through and survived. And, and you sort of have to reconcile that with what you're seeing before you. And that puts you in the same position that Olivier is in because he knows what this child has done and he knows what this child has done to his life, you know, to Olivier's life himself. But, but the, you know, he just seems, I mean, it's one of those things where you're like, just seems like a decent enough kid seems like a normal teenager it's it's one of those strange questions um i I think there's very little that's and i think this probably adds to the intensity of of the narrative as well but there's very little in this world that's that's more confusing and, and more disturbing to me socially than um child innocence meets um primal reaction um because um you know, we all, all as humans, obviously, um, find ourselves somewhere caught between um, the rational, our frontal lobe rationality, um, versus our primal tendencies. And when you put that into the context of a child with a less developed frontal lobe who is kind of pure innocence and has the tendency towards reactionary um, responses anyway, um, and then you put them into an atmosphere where they can do horrible things Mm -hmm. and then where are they accountable where is it lost innocence where is it victimization versus where are they the one victimizing and um and so it's a very harsh thing to 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 look at and even within our society when you start talking about um child violence um um, that has you know come to the forefront um in the last 10 to 15 years um actually the last two decades i guess um but teenage violence um youth violence um um, 10-year-olds raping 9-year-olds. Um, these things that, that we know go on in society and have obviously been brought to light. And where is the child accountable? Where Where is it lost innocence and where are they um, guilty? Um, so easy for us to say, try them as an adult. Yeah. The, the kid's 10 years old, man. Right. What do you mean try him as an adult? I right, don't care right. what he did. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. Is he a sociopath? Maybe or did a sociopath mess him up? Yeah, you know, yeah, and, and yeah. who are we really trying here? And so I think interjecting that into this narrative, there's, there's just a natural loss um, from my perspective, a natural loss on on how I can how I can put blame on this child, yeah. and and um, and at the same time, a loss at how can I forgive murder, right? You know, especially of a another innocent, right? I think the whole the fact that they're dealing with wood. Um, and that there's this running theme where Olivier is trying to teach Francis the basics of of carpentry, which is both an art and a science, you yes. know. Um, 
and he's like part of it is he's teaching him how to identify different kinds of wood um and the finale of the film is set at a lumberyard um sawmill um and when they go there there's there's some scenes of olivier saying what kind of wood is this and francis is trying to identify it and it's it's really sort of sweet but at the same time kind of tragic that this kid is learning the basics of this trade and they're dealing with something that is natural it's a natural thing a tree growing from the ground um this this collision of um of nature and nurture or of you know of of the primal and uh socialization so like it's a tree but it's in an unrecognizable form it's been taken by man and sanded and cut and straightened and measured and smoothed and it's stacked in this unrecognizable form and it's sort of like we see the this kid natural you know a human animal that has been sort of shaped and molded by society and what has come out of it. He's trying to learn how to identify who he himself is. And we, the audience too, are trying to figure out like, what is, where is his place in the world? What is he, what can he be used for? Shaped and formed and smoothed out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's some pretty heavy questions being asked in this. It film. really is, and it's all done. It's all done so deftly because we're just we're figuring out we're we're figuring it all out at the same time as Olivier is. Yes, like we're on this journey with him, trying to puzzle through and unpack this delicate moral moral dilemma. Um, and I think a part of that too is is that I think so are the Dardine brothers. Yeah. All right, so you got anything more to say about this film? I, if I were to have to hold up any um, any contemporary filmmakers and say I, I just really can't find anything that I think should be done differently, that I really think this is as close to clean, pure, honest filmmaking um, that I can fathom, um, these are the guys. Yeah, I would love to hear what you have as a final statement, though I don't think there's a lot of question in my head. <laughs> yeah, um, I, no, there isn't. I thought this film was fucking brilliant. <laughs> Um, there was was not a moment uh that i lost interest i love it there was not a moment that i was um was bored or even questioning why (laughs) why you showed me this (laughs) i didn't have that 10 minute adjustment period that you had with uh, brain damage it was just like from the very first very first frame i was all in awesome yeah we both scored this week Uh, (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, most definitely that great job great successes um (laughs) i i think the most probably natural connection to the film that either one of us has had as far as like really just immediately well i had my little 10 minute gap but you know just really being drawn in and really saying i love that film i'm going to run with this yeah so that's great yeah um don't expect that necessarily next time. <laughs> oh, no, in fact, we, we, we might try to intentionally uh, uh, sabotage each other. Monsieur? C'est lui? No. All right, so as for next time, 
I'm staying in America, but I am um, making a big time jump all the way to a film that is just a few years old um, from 2011. Uh, Lucky McKee and Jack Ketchum's The Woman. The Woman. And what was the year on that again? 2011. Oh, wow. I'm actually going to follow along very much with the pattern that I've been on. And, um, and we are going to have a, a, a twist and a turn in the road here very soon. But I want to complete this, um, this mode that I'm in. And um, so we're going to stay in France. We're going to stay contemporary. Uh-huh. And we are going to take you to what was coined Cinema du Corps. Coined by... Um, Dr. Tim Palmer, a professor of mine, and um, so the film is In My Skin by Marina Devon, and um, and so once again, cinema decor means uh, cinema of the body, exploration of the body, um, very controversial little movement in French cinema, um, has been shuffled off as pure shock cinema sometimes, other times it's been embraced as the new renaissance of art cinema, um, and so there, I think there should be a lot to talk about there. This is a film that uh, is already on my list that I've been meaning to watch for a long time now, probably ever since it came out. Excellent. Um, what year is it? Oh, two, something like that? Something along those lines. It's early 2000s. Let's see here. Um, 2002. Yeah. Same as uh, The Sun. Same as The Sun. So, yeah, this I've been I've been meaning to watch this for a while. I've heard it. Um, I've heard it described as a horror film. It. it uh, very often. Yeah. Very, so, very often. I mean, you know, this might be one of those uh, cannibal holocaust situations where it turns out to be a crossover. Um, I was kind of thinking in that direction my way. But myself. yeah. So, uh, you know, next time you can enjoy some discussion of uh, the woman and of In My Skin. And I don't know quite what the woman has to offer, but uh, <laughs> get ready for, uh, yeah, some interesting, disturbing yeah. chat. But uh, until then, I'm Todd. Uh, keep it artsy. And I'm Cullen, and I implore you to keep it crass. Woohoo! <laughs> I'm not a juvenile delinquent. Okay, good people. As always, we would love to hear from you. Uh, the email is artscrasspodcast at gmail.com, or you can hit us up on our Facebook page. There is another podcast called Arts and Crass. We are not affiliated with them. They do comedy. We talk about movies. Uh, They had the name first. We did not copy them. We came up with the name on our own, and we liked it too much not to use it. Sorry. (laughs) 